welcome to the Indie Jigsaw. This is where we take all the little pieces of why Scotland needs to be independent, what kind of country we want to be, how we're going to get there, and try and put them together to see what that picture looks like. It's the Indie Jigsaw. This month's Jigsaw pieces cover subjects as diverse as the State of the Yes movement from Leslie Riddich, Thoughts on the Ending of the UK by historian James Hawes, the National Insurance Tax Hike by Philippa Whitford, CND Speech by Tony Giuliani, Thoughts on COP26 from Lorna Slater, the effect of the Supreme Court judgment on the UNCRC bill from John Swinney, uh, Pretty Patel's Borders Bill and its Breaches of International Law from Joanna Cherry, and Thoughts on Scotland's Energy from George Caravan. So let's get started. On the 21st of September in the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh, there was an excellent night called the Big Indie Debate. It was a wide-ranging panel and Q&A plus music. If you want to see the whole thing, it is on Independence Live's YouTube channel. The event was hosted by Leslie Riddich, and for this piece of the jigsaw, we have her opening remarks as she opened the event. It's a lovely summary, I think, of the joy of the Yes movement. So anyway, um, as the panel assembles behind me, seamlessly, I hope, I just say that tonight is, although it's a sort of weird uh, event, and obviously the pandemic has closed everything down so much, and I actually salute all of you who've had the courage to come tonight, <laughs> because I know a lot of folk will have been swithering and I've seen how many other events have got far fewer people than you would normally expect, because it just feels a bit edgy still. But it's a classic yes night, because it's founded on the things that yes thrives on, the currency of yes, the energy of yes. And that is friendship, albeit with a slight arm up your back, which is why all of us are here. Um, it's also why all the musicians are here as volunteers. It's also why Kevin Gibney is here from Indie Live, and uh, we should first wave to everybody who's watching online, and then give a massive round of applause for a guy who came from Glasgow when he's no off he will. Please. <laughs> but if there is one characteristic, really, of yes, it's doggedness. It's doggedness. We're still yes, and nothing's changing that. I, I can see, and I can, that uh, the way many grown-up commentators look at us is as if we're teenagers, going through a wee phase. We're going to come out of it soon, where no. This is not a phase. This is having looked at our own country, at our own lives, at our own expectations, at everything we thought was kind of normal at this in this country, the best you could hope for, and realizing it was never enough. And it has to change. And that knowledge cannot be unknown. And what we've seen cannot be unseen. We've changed. We're here. We're dogged and we're not going back. And if there's one person who represents that quality of doggedness, it's the man who's sitting in the corner, hot foot from the Royal Infirmary for about the fifth time in a month, Mike Blackshaw. (laughs) 
Now, I should just say, just when I'm getting back to Indie Live, who are my blooming heroes in life, actually, as a radio broadcaster in days of yore, these guys are the new kind of broadcasting. They are citizen broadcasters who care. And you couldn't actually have a better set of people to be, to be connecting us all to events. Um, and so for everyone who's watching, it would be tremendous if you did contribute, you naughty little minxes, um, you could contribute to independencelive.net and everyone would be offy pleased. Now, one other thought in all of this, you know, just a little thing about that, about like take Indie Live. Where's no live? Where's Union Live Radio? Where is all the things that we have got quite well? Okay, stop, stop, stop now. <laughs> but the point is that the activists, the self-starters, the people who don't expect to be paid, the people who are doing this for love, the people who are learning as they go, the people who are managing to master techniques that I know because I was in that world, normally demand a whole squad of people. There's one guy sitting up the back. That, that kind of thing is not replicated on the other side of this argument. And so that kind of level of doggedness and persistence is, is characteristic of this campaign. It reminds me of one inevitably I was involved with on the island of Egg. Um, if anyone had told the Eggachs and supporters at the very start that it would take eight years to achieve the buyout, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't have even started. I'm sure even more people would be astonished that in the end they'd win. But the two things come together. The long perseverance through extraordinary obstacles that some people don't know the half of. You probably don't even know Pavarotti tried to buy egg. Aye. <laughs> so there were extraordinary obstacles and it became slightly ridiculous, but there was a point where, as Alistair McIntosh put it, egg became unlairdable. Well. <laughs> Scotland's at that point. We're not being run with somebody, you know, we're not puppets. We're not kind of just toddling along as usual. We're not going to have this. Um, ridiculous undemocratic state of affairs. How we get over the next bit, yeah, it's difficult. But we're dogged and we're not going away. This is not a phase. We're still yes. This next clip comes from a discussion on the TNT show between host John Drummond and guest Dr. James Hawes, who is an English historian and writer. Dr. Hawes has published a book called The Shortest History of England, amongst many others. And in this clip, they discuss the fact that the UK has been failing for over a century, and they speculate on why that might be, and what might actually bring about its final split. Perhaps you could enlarge on that. You, you say that England, the future of England is open, wide open, and that may in turn have a, a major impact on independence for Scotland. Why do you say that and, and what is your contention? My contention essentially is that the UK is not only doomed, but it has been doomed for over a century. Uh, and in a sense, one of my prize exhibits in the book is, is none other than Winston Churchill in 1912, of course, MP for Dundee at that stage, a liberal MP for Dundee, 
trying to hold his beloved UK together, the centre's HQ of his beloved empire. And he put his finger on the fact that the force that was going to blow it apart was actually England. That it was England, the split within England, the dominance of the southern part of England within England and its refusal to let go that would make impossible his dream. And it's a dream which in many ways one has to regret. Don't forget, in 1912, very few people, even in Ireland, wanted full independence. On the other hand, lest we forget, there was a Scottish Home Rule Bill, of course, forgotten by so many people now that was already on its way through Parliament in 1912. The UK was clearly collapsing. Churchill was desperate to hold it together, but he realised it could only work as a genuine union of free peoples who would each send their representative to what he called an imperial parliament. But he put his finger on the problem was that England itself would have to be split up to make that work. And because it hasn't been, the UK is hopeless. And, you know, if anyone, if anyone says that's exaggerated, all I can say, well, it's not me, it's Winston Churchill. How, 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 how do you visualise England being split up? Would it be north and south or would it be... Well, Churchill, Churchill's words were he had to be divided into several great self-governing areas. Well, he, meant, he mentioned uh, in 1912, and he, he, he repeated himself in 1913, he... Um, he mentioned that Yorkshire, Lancashire and the Midlands could be given basically you know, federal powers. The, the problem in England is this, that you know, from the very beginning, since before it was called England, in fact, England itself is split. Now, to Scottish viewers, that's familiar, the familiar notion of the Great Glen splitting Scotland. England is just as split by essentially by the River Trent. The whole, the whole geology, the whole agriculture, the, even the weather patterns are different north of that. And again and again in the history of England, that's been the split, the unacknowledged split, which around which English politics goes around in this endlessly, like a black hole, really. It's interesting, too, that just like the Great Glen, there's a geological split, the Trent and the Humber, etc. You also make the point that the elite in the South in particular had a specific approach to ensuring their dominance, even if it meant recruiting monarchs from elsewhere. <laughs> if that worked. <laughs> Tell us what you... Every country has its own traumas, its own past, its own splits, you know, and I, I, I know this. I, in England, the, the, the great one is that not only is the country split north and south, and always has been, you know, the, the Venerable Bede noted this 1,300 years ago, and a map, drawn, a map drawn along the line described by the Venerable Bede is exactly the same as a map produced today saying social inequality in England, exactly the same. But England uniquely, and this is even this all makes England uniquely damaged in the whole of Europe, in my experience, and I know several countries in Europe very well, is that overlaid over that regional or, or almost national split within England, there is the class thing, which is the product of the fact that England was only ever really unified, that, that north-south divide was only ever really overcome by foreign conquerors. The first person to actually call England England in documents was Knut of Denmark its first foreign colonizer. Just 50 years later, of course, comes the deluge for England with the, the, the Norman conquest, which meant that for the next, well, up till now, frankly, England, uniquely in Europe, has this elite which is culturally different, and everybody knows it. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. Your listeners might enjoy this. I could talk to you right now with only words taken straight out of the mouths of our Anglo-Saxon forefathers. Or we could continue this discourse employing vocabulary derived entirely from the French language. Now, those are both English, but they're different levels. And every Englishman, when you meet another Englishman, 
immediately knows which side of that he's on. So an Englishman knows straight away, are you north or south? He knows straight away, are you posh or not? Are you elite or not? Whatever the word is. And that leads to England itself being such a messed up country that, that one really doesn't know. I mean, I have no idea what's going to become of England when it is once again alone in the world, which it soon will be for the first time since 1707. How, how do you think that will happen? I mean, there's lots of people watching us tonight and thinking, great, James, this is fantastic. This is the sort of news that I was hoping to hear. But they'll also be at the same time puzzled. They'll be saying, how is it going to happen? I mean, they'll take your point about England, I suspect, but they may still be thinking, how will that affect Scotland? I mean, how's that going to work? Well, let, let's just, just start off by saying, by, by making it plain that, that the UK has been collapsing since 1921. I mean, the, the United Kingdom was only invented as a, as a state in 1801 to control Ireland. Now, most of Ireland left, and frankly, all of it should have done, in 1921. So what we call the what we now call the UK is since 1921 just a weird little rump, which is, and no one really cared about what was left of Northern Ireland, which is why it was allowed to go its own sweet way into becoming a kind of bizarre paramilitary, you know, one party, one governor state between the wars. Now, so... First place, let's make it clear, the UK is collapsing. It's been held together probably by just by two world wars more than anything else. Um, it will come, the collapse will come. It's been going for hundred years. How it will come is a fascinating question. I believe it will come more quickly than we now expect. And that the immediate cause of that will be something which appears quite small initially and is certainly impossible to predict. For example, you know, I, I was a, my first job was in, I was at university in Ireland. In my first job was as a as a lecturer of German studies, and half my colleagues there were experts in East German literature and culture. And none of us foresaw in the summer of 1989 that within a year Germany would be completely united again. We would have thought it was completely impossible. And the initial cause was simply that they opened the border between East Germany and Hungary to let some holidaymakers to let some steam off, as they thought. And from that, the whole thing just unwound overnight almost. And something like that will happen. I can't predict what it might be. It could be a dispute over the nuclear submarine bases. It could be something to do with COVID. You know, if you cast your mind back, dear viewers, to just two, two years ago before the COVID epidemic, if someone had asked you then, can you think of any circumstances in which the Parliament of Scotland, the government of Scotland, will actually say it's going to close the border and turn English registered cars back? You would have said that's nonsense, that's science fiction, but it's happened. Something, see, something like that will happen now. Under those circumstances, I was thinking this just earlier in the year when the lockdown was severe. Imagine now a very aggressive English lawyer driver refuses to stop, and by refusing to stop, knocks down a Scottish policeman. Then suddenly, you're in a kind of Northern Ireland situation, quite potentially there. When history is going in a, in a certain direction, which it is, the tipping point will come from something small, but it will come. This clip is from the Westminster debate on the Tory government's proposals to use national insurance from across every part of the United Kingdom to fund the English social care system. And in this clip, Dr Philippa Whitford explains the, the difference between the Scottish NHS, which is still publicly owned, unlike most of the English one, Thank you very much, Madam De Deputy Speaker. Um, I'm pleased to follow the Honourable Gentleman opposite because I do welcome that this debate is happening and I do welcome that there is an attempt to find a solution to something that absolutely has been kicked down the road. 
But I am very disappointed that, despite the rhetoric, there was no attempt at cross-party contact or to achieve consensus and agree a long-term solution. Yeah, yeah. I also feel that this particular proposal is regressive. It will hit lower-paid people, including the key workers we were clapping for just 18 months ago. It will hit the younger generation who have been hit in multiple directions and will not have the benefits that we have been lucky enough to have in our lifetime. It will stifle recovery because it is simply a tax on jobs. And like previous social security cuts driven by Tory austerity, it will take money out of local economies. It will remove spending power. That means you are increasing poverty the single biggest driver of ill health. And in Scotland, that will impact on our aim to have a well-being recovery from COVID. That is why we object to this. That is why we object to the Prime Minister saying he will direct how this spending is used. Income tax would have been fairer. It's paid by wealthy pensioners that I will probably be in a few years' time. It's paid more by people who earn more. It doesn't hit wealth, but there are other taxes that could have been used to do that. Mm -hmm. The Scottish Government already took action in 2018 by adding a penny to all of our tax bans so that we had more money for health and social care. We don't just provide free prescriptions. We're the only UK nation that provides free personal care. And in 2019, that was extended to those in need below the age of 65. That is something that other nations within the UK should be aspiring to. It allows people to stay at home. It allows people to have greater independence. And that's how we should be looking on it. The Feely review that the Scottish Government commissioned asks us to turn it round. Stop seeing social care as a burden. See it as a way of allowing people to still be part of our society, whether due to disability or to age. And we do object to the undermining of devolution because it's the Scottish Parliament that has responsibility for the strategy of health and social care. And our health and social care landscape is quite different. Not just free personal care, but also we still have a unified public NHS. We've been integrating with social care since 2013. So to say that suddenly we will hand that control over to the Prime Minister, I'm sorry, that isn't going to wash. Mm -hmm. What we have in the National Care Service proposal from the Feely Review is recognition that we already pay the real living wage. We pay for overnight sleepovers. But what we actually need in social care in all four nations is to develop social care as a career. So people stay there and commit to it. It's not just a job you do till you can go on the checkout at Tesco's. It's a simple fact that above all other careers, care is delivered by people for people. And that's where any plan should start. Focus on the workforce and then you may end up with a care service that you can be proud of and will deliver for all constituents. Thank you. Speaking at the Faslane rally for independence in a nuclear-free Scotland and giving quite an eloquent case as to why nuclear weapons have no part of our future. This is Tony Giuliani. 
It's delighted to see all of you here today because we do need to say it loudly and clearly that there is no moral case for Trident. There is no economic case for Trident and there is no military case for Trident. It is the norm in the world to be nuclear free. It is the exception to the rule to possess nuclear weapons. And yet, as we've heard from Isabel Lindsay and CND, the UK government behind us is increasing the number of nuclear weapons on the Clyde. What message does that send to countries across the world? How can we expect nations to disarm or not to arm if we send the message that the only way that we can protect our security is to possess nuclear weapons. Trident, of course, are yesterday's weapons. And even then, they failed to protect and they failed to deter a single conflict. They are completely redundant in today's world. Cyber attacks can't be deterred by Trident. Terrorism can't be deterred by Trident. Future pandemics can't be deterred by Clydent. The climate emergency can't be deterred by Trident. These are the global issues that we face and nuclear weapons play no role whatsoever in ensuring that we have a resilient state, a resilient country. And you know, I hear the likes of the UK Chancellor the billionaire UK Chancellor say that we can't afford the £20 uplift to universal credit. Well, let me offer up a suggestion. Stop funding redundant nuclear weapons and start investing in the people of our country who need it most. And as for Scottish Labour, you know, the uh, deputy leader of the Scottish Labour Party, a great defender of weapons of mass destruction. She describes our opposition to nuclear weapons as gesture politics. Well, I don't know about you, but I call it principled politics, ethical politics, compassionate politics, rational politics. Gesture politics is when you waste billions on a status symbol that will never be used purely to give the impression that the UK still has influence on the world stage. That, my friends, is gesture politics. And talking of world stage, I have been reflecting on the horror that is unfolding as we speak in Afghanistan. And we need to do everything we can to bring as many people as possible to safety. But what is happening in Afghanistan is not only a shameful betrayal, it is the biggest foreign and defence policy failure of recent times. And the British states must reflect and act upon those failures. I believe independence gives Scotland the opportunity to build an alternative foreign and defence policy. 
that moves away from the imperial bluster of the British state, which has failed time and time again. A foreign policy that respects international law, a foreign policy that respects human rights, that builds a compassionate asylum system, a Scotland that reprioritizes our, our conventional defense, which has been cut to the bone by this UK government to pay for Trident. So I say this, in the first hundred days of independence, we must kickstart the process to remove these unlawful weapons from our soil. And we will ensure that Faslane thrives as a fit-for-purpose non-nuclear base. Retaining the jobs and the talents that already exist to support the communities of this area and beyond. Because I'm sick to death of hearing from the likes of Scottish Labour and the local MSP that we would close this base. Absolutely not. We will ensure that the talent remains but we will have no nuclear weapons on our soil. With independence, we'll be able to shift the debate on Trident. It won't any longer be about its relocation or about its renewal. It will be about getting rid of it once and for all. That's what independence will do. Let me conclude by just sending a heartfelt message to the Yes Movement, all of the Yes Movement. Now is the time for us to unite, to work together, as we did in 2014. That's why I'm here representing the SNP today, and I know that there are many speakers representing lots of different organisations and groups, but now is the time for us to unite as we did then, to create the nuclear free independent Scotland we know is possible and it's up to us to make that happen. Thank you very much. COP26 Glasgow, the United Nations Climate Convention, was postponed from 2020 until November 2021. Back in February of 2021, we talked to Lorna Slater, who's the co-leader of the Scottish Green Party, with a long conversation with her about a green vision for Scotland. Since then, Lorna has become an MSP at Holyrood. At the end of her conversation with her, she had two minutes to give us an indication of her thoughts, expectations, hopes for COP26. One last question while we've still got you, and that is um, the COP26 in November due to be held in Glasgow, and um, that will put Glasgow, Scotland rather, sorry, not Glasgow, put Scotland on the world stage. But do you think it will have, do you think that will just be a fleeting thing or do you think that will have lasting benefits for our country? I think it could do. It's like so much else, whether it's handled well or not. The problem we have globally in the world is that although all the countries signed up to the Paris Climate Agreement two years ago, four years ago, whenever it was now, uh, gosh, it's, time is ticking along. I think it's four years ago. Not a single country has done what they said they would do. 
they haven't done it. So, I mean, it was a wonderful achievement. And the woman who, who um, kind of got that agreement to happen is a wonderful woman called Christiana Figueres, who yeah. ran the UN Committee on Climate Change, who I traveled to the Antarctic with in 2019. <laughs> so I know her. She's a wonderful woman. And it was an amazing achievement, but so disappointing that none of the countries since have have actually taken any action on this. So COP26 is kind of a make or break one because unless countries start taking immediate and quite significant action, we are going to start hitting some of those tipping points that will tip the planet past the point where we can't stop heating at two degrees. And we must emphasize how horrendous the consequences are of beating three degrees and four degrees, how our food crops will die, how our cities will be flooded. We have to take significant action now. And I, I don't know, there is the possibility that we can do this, that we can bring the countries together and get to significant action. But I have to say, I'm not hugely confident in this. Getting Joe Biden elected yeah. in America is an optimistic sign, but we're still stuck with Boris Johnson here. So, you know, unless we, unless we get Joe Biden's everywhere, unless we get people who really understand the climate crisis government everywhere, we're going to struggle. Uh, but yes, it'll be interesting to see. The Greens will be there. We'll be absolutely trying to get, um, you know, the support going for significant action. In 2014, we were told that Holyrood would be the most powerful devolved parliament in the world. This week, the UK government shows just how low it can sink by referring a unanimously agreed Scottish bill to the Supreme Court. And what was the Scottish Parliament's great heinous crime? It was attempting to protect our children's rights by incorporating the UN Charter for Children's Rights in Scottish legislation. Here John Swinney explains the background to the situation and what the next steps are likely to be. Thank you, Presiding Officer. This morning, the Supreme Court handed down its judgment on the European Charter of Local Self-Government in Corporation Scotland Bill and the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child in Corporation Scotland Bill. Although we've had limited time to consider the full implications of that judgment, given the seriousness of those potential implications, I wanted to come to Parliament at the earliest opportunity to update members. I am grateful to you, Presiding Officer, and the Parliamentary Bureau for making time to have this statement today. In every parliamentary term, there are moments where this Parliament comes together to make a significant statement of intent on who we are and what we collectively stand for, showing a shared sense of purpose on what we seek to achieve as parliamentarians for the people of Scotland. Presiding Officer, the Scottish Parliament unanimously passing the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and Cooperation Bill in March was one such moment. This Parliament set out our collective will to change the culture and practice of how we support children in Scotland. Incorporating the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child directly into our domestic law would make us the first administration in the United Kingdom and the first of all legislature anywhere in the world to do so. We felt proud to be the, the Parliament that would enable this historic step to be taken. We celebrated how this bill would change the lives of children for generations. We imagined how incorporating Article 12 would mean that children will have the right to be involved and heard in relation to the decisions that affect their lives. We all look forward to seeing the, the improvement incorporating Article 23 would deliver in ensuring that children with disabilities have dignity, self-reliance, and are able to actively participate in their community. 
We were certain we were doing the right thing by incorporating Article 3 so that children's best interests are a primary consideration in decision-making. On the 12th of April, however, the United Kingdom Government's law officers referred certain provisions of the Bill to the Supreme Court. That reference meant that the Bill could not be presented for royal assent and accordingly could not become law until the reference was determined. Today we have that, dem that determination. Presiding officer, while we fully respect the Court's judgment and will abide by the ruling, we cannot help but be bitterly disappointed. It makes plain that we are constitutionally prohibited from enacting legislation that this Parliament unanimously decided was necessary to enshrine and fully protect the rights of our children. Before I discuss the implications of that in more detail, I shall make clear that the judgment effect also affects the Local Self-Government Bill. That bill strengthened local government by incorporating the Charter into Scots law. Starting as a member's bill, it too was passed unanimously by the Scottish Parliament and supported by the Scottish Government and local government through the Convention of Scottish Local Authorities. The bill was intended to develop and to further strengthen the relationship between the Scottish Government and local government in Scotland and so ensuring that priorities and policies are developed and delivered in partnership. The judgment will make these aims more difficult to achieve. The Scottish Government will now liaise closely with Mark Ruskell, the designated member in charge, who has taken this role from the former member of the Scottish Parliament, Andy Whiteman, to work out how best the potential next steps can be taken in addressing the issues from the ruling. The UNCRC Bill was a landmark moment in, Scot in the Scottish Parliament's history. It was modelled partly on two pieces of legislation central to our Constitution, the Human Rights Act 1998 and the Scotland Act 1998. The UNCRC Bill sought to incorporate international human rights law into our domestic law and adopt a judicial route to a remedy. With the unanimous support of the Parliament and the overwhelming support of stakeholders, we sought to make those internationally recognised treaty articles directly justiciable in Scottish courts, with powers for our independent judiciary to either strike down incompatible legislation in devolved areas or, if a future piece of legislation, declare it incompatible. That was a new approach for legislation in this Parliament. So the UNCRC Bill took us into new territory, including the use of the powers of the Parliament and devolved competence. After wide public consultation, and full parliamentary scrutiny, we all entered that territory clear that this was the approach that we wanted to take. The full implications of the judgment need to be considered carefully. However, our initial view is that the judgment does not prevent the Scottish Parliament from doing something we would consider routine practice. It has not narrowed our ability to amend or repeal legislation in devolved areas, either in an act of our Parliament or the United Kingdom Parliament. It has not changed our competence to incorporate international treaties, nor has it reduced our ability to rely on our judiciary to enforce our statute book. The judgment does, however, expose the devolution settlement as even more limited than we all, indeed the Scottish Parliament itself, had understood. It sets out new constraints on the ability of our democratically elected Scottish Parliament to legislate to protect children's rights in the way it determines, after open and careful consideration, appropriate roles for the judiciary and this parliament in that protection. Strikingly, 
This judgment has decided that there are limitations to devolve competence for the mere reason that existing statutory provision just happens to be in an act of the Westminster Parliament. The reason for this distinction derives from Westminster's continued claim of sovereignty over all matters, including those devolved to this Parliament. But the effect of this distinction is essentially arbitrary. For example, the Scottish Parliament can fully protect children's rights by declarations of incompatibility if those rights are affected by acts of this Parliament, like Gaelic education under the Education Scotland Act 2016, but not if they are in Westminster legislation from before devolution, such as the Education Scotland Act 1980, even if the subject matter of that legislation is wholly devolved and could be repealed and replaced by the Scottish Parliament. Our own children, in our own schools, in our own country, but Westminster legislation. So we cannot apply the UNCRC to that legislation. That is the ludicrous constitutional position Scotland finds itself in. The Supreme Court has therefore illustrated the incoherence of the powers of the Scottish Parliament within the current devolved settlement and under the current UK constitutional arrangements tied to the continued claim of unlimited sovereignty by the Parliament at Westminster. There is no doubt that the implications of this judgment are significant from a children's rights perspective and in terms of this government and indeed this Parliament's aspiration for the country we want our children to grow up in. The Scottish Government remains absolutely committed to the incorporation of the UNCRC into Scots law to the maximum extent possible. We want to ensure that we pursue that policy in a way that can be enacted and therefore made real in practice. Members may wish to recall what children told us about how incorporation would change things for the better. In the evidence that the Children's Parliament gave in, a, in the consultation on the bill last year, a child said, I think you should make children's rights law because it will keep a lot more children safe. Bruce Adamson, the Children and Young People's Commissioner for Scotland, called the incorporation of the UNCRC into Scots law the most important thing we can do to protect and uphold the rights of children and young people. The Supreme Court has criticised the maximalist approach the Scottish Government took as deliberately exceeding the limitations of competence. It is normal for the Scottish Government to invite the Scottish Parliament to make the maximum use of its devolved powers and responsibilities. Indeed, we are frequently encouraged to do so, and on this issue we are specifically encouraged to take this approach by many voices within the Scottish Parliament. It was an approach widely supported by many stakeholders and by the children of Scotland who wanted Parliament to protect them to the maximum extent possible. The law in the area in question had not previously been tested. The Scottish Government took a reasonable view on these difficult questions, a view which the presiding officer of the time judged to be within legislative competence and which was unanimously supported by Parliament. The Scottish Government notes that this judgment underscores that domestic legal effect to international human rights treaties can only be achieved through incorporation and that while it is within the Scottish Parliament's competence to incorporate international treaties and protect the rights of Scotland's citizens, the nature of our current devolution settlement and the UK's constitutional arrangements impose limitations on the extent and the manner in which we can do that. It is regrettable that this bill has been delayed and will not now become law in the form which our Parliament agreed. We remain committed to the incorporation of the UNCRC 
to the maximum extent possible as soon as practicable. Whilst the judgment means that the Bill cannot receive royal assent in its current form, the majority of work in relation to implementation of the UNCRC can and is continuing. We will now reflect on how to add to those existing protections through incorporation. The UNCRC is the most widely ratified international treaty, but very few countries have committed to take the journey that Scotland has so, so clearly wants to take. To everyone who has walked with us this far on that journey, encouraging us along the way, I want to reassure you that we will reach our destination. The Government remains committed to the incorporation of the UNCRC to the maximum extent possible. There is no doubt that we may not yet wholly comprehend all the implications from this judgment. It will require careful consideration and I will be happy to keep Parliament updated. But one thing, Presiding Officer, is already crystal clear. Some have said that the Scottish Parliament is the most powerful devolved legislature in the world. On the day that the Supreme Court has confirmed boundaries on our ability to protect our children, I regret to say it certainly does not feel anything like that. Newspapers are reporting this week that Priti Patel's controversial new Borders Bill breaches international and domestic law in at least 10 different ways, from a team of leading immigration lawyers for barristers led by human rights QC Raza Hussein. This really shouldn't come as any surprise to us because, back on the 20th of July, Joanna Cherry made a speech at Westminster explaining exactly the same thing. Uh, the great English jurist Lord Bingham famously wrote that the rule of law encompassed eight principles. Principle five states that the law must afford adequate protection of human rights. And principle eight stipulates that the state must comply with its obligations in international law as in national law. These principles are widely revered and have gained international respect. Yet barely a week goes by when this British government doesn't bring to this House a bill which threatens to breach one or both of those principles. This bill is yet another example. And it's also another example of the government breaking its word, given the U-turn on its previous commitment to decrease the use of immigration detention. Now, for anyone who wasn't following the debate at the first stage uh, yesterday, I would commend to them the speech of my honourable friend, the member for Cumbernauld, Kilsyth and Kirkintilloch East, which uh, set out in a very eloquent and measured way the many problems with this bill, how it uh, seeks, as the honourable member for Westmoreland said, to tackle a problem which doesn't exist and fails to tackle a problem which does exist. But my honourable friend also set out in some detail how, if this bill becomes law, we risk breaching both our international treaty obligations and our obligations under the European Convention of Human Rights. Yes, I will. The honourable lady says that this bill seeks to address a problem that doesn't exist. So does she not think that illegal crossings in the English Channel, small boats, dinghies, overfilled with people, people risking their lives. Would she say that that's not a problem that we should try to address? When I say it, it addresses a problem which doesn't exist, one of the previous speakers talked to the country being overrun by immigrants. That's simply not the case. As I said in my intervention on the Honourable Gentleman earlier, yes, I do think, as he, to use his words, innocent and vulnerable people crossing the channel with people smugglers is a problem. 
But I don't think the solution to that problem is to criminalise, to use his words, those innocent and vulnerable people. And that's one of the central problems of this bill. And in fact, to do so, to criminalise those innocent and vulnerable people is, is potentially in breach of our international legal obligations. Madam Deputy Speaker, if this bill becomes law, we risk breaching the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, the 1961 UN Convention on the, Redu on the Reduction of Statelessness, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, and we also risk breaching the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. If this bill becomes law, we also risk breaching multiple articles of the European Convention on Human Rights, to which this government assures us they are still committed. In fact, the Lord Chancellor gave evidence to the Joint Committee on Human Rights last week and was most anxious to assure us that the government are still committed to the European Convention on Human Rights. But there's not much point in being committed to it uh, in name if you bring legislation to the House which threatens to breach it by its terms, as does the introduction of a two-tier system for refugees. That potentially breaches the right to be free from discrimination in the enjoyment of one's human rights. The changes proposed by the Bill potentially undermine the right to life for those at sea. Changes to the application and appeals process for asylum seekers and provisions regarding credibility and the weight to be given to evidence risk breaching the right to a fair trial. Now, the Joint Committee on Human Rights, of which I'm a member, have already raised concerns that decision-making by the Home Office in immigration matters is not sufficiently independent or rigorous to make sure that human rights are respected. And this bill will make it worse. Madam Deputy Speaker, why would Scotland want to be part of a union where decisions like this affecting our international standing and the perception of this state on the world stage are forced through by a government with such scant regard for human rights and the rule of law. And it's not just this bill. This bill is one in a succession of bills that have gone through this House recently, which many independent commentators have said threaten to breach our international treaty obligations and also threaten to breach our commitment to human rights under the European Convention. In one case, the government was quite brazen about it, and the minister stood up on the bench and said this uh, bill uh, seeks to break international law, but only in a specific and limited way. Would that it were so with this bill? This bill is going to break international law, but not in a specific and limited way, in a number of respects which those with more time have enumerated more eloquently than I can. Madam Deputy Speaker, this is not the way to do things. It's not right and it's not humane. There are millions of displaced people across the world and millions of refugees. The United Kingdom cannot wash our hands of responsibility for them, particularly when at least some of the reasons for their displacement can be laid at our door and at the door of our foreign policy and our colonial past. The real mischief which this bill should seek to tackle, but doesn't, is that there are insufficient lawful routes for claiming asylum in the United Kingdom. Yes, resettlement programmes are laudable, but they're not a solution for those claiming asylum because resettlement programmes deal with those already recognised as having a protection need. Those in need of international protection who reach the shores of the United Kingdom should not be criminalised.
Madam Deputy Speaker, it's time the Home Secretary stopped playing to the gallery and did the hard work necessary to fulfil the United Kingdom's moral and legal obligations to refugees and asylum seekers. As my honourable friend for Cumbernauld, Kilsyth and Kirkintilakeast has said so eloquently, it's no point in honourable members opposite waxing lyrical about the rights of persecuted Christians and the rights of the Uyghurs to be free from Chinese atrocities if they threaten to criminalise those sorts of people when they make it to our shores. Yes, I will give way. I thank the honourable friend for giving way. Um, she is very eloquently making the point. But for, for so many people who come here through an, an illegal route, through no choice of their own, through a set of circumstances that in often cases are beyond their control, what the message that this government sends is you are not welcome. What would she say to those who have made a life here and contributed so much that they could continue to c contribute were it not for this abhorrent policy? Well, I mean, what I would say to them and what the Scottish Government has said to them and what my party says to them is that they're very welcome in Scotland. But unfortunately, at the moment, we don't have uh, control over uh, that aspect of policy. And until we take the steps to make sure that we do have control over that aspect of policy, we are stuck with trying to persuade this British government. We're stuck with trying to persuade this uh, British government uh, that uh, their policies are wrong. Um, I fear, Madam Deputy Speaker, that the chances of this government uh, amending this bill in any meaningful way are absolutely zero. But I know that my constituents. And many organisations, the Trade Union Congress in Edinburgh, passed a motion condemning this bill just in the last few days. I know that it matters very much to my constituents and other people in Scotland that the Scottish National Party stand against the bill. Uh, as I say, I don't think our stand will work, and I continue to look forward to a future where an independent Scotland will be able to set a better example in relation to refugee policy. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm coming to an end. This next clip is George Caravan, who was one of the speakers at the All Under One Banner rally at Edinburgh on the 25th of September. And this was recorded at the rally, and at one point, George was upstaged by a whole cavalcade of yes bikers. So there's a little bit of um, background noise, shall we say, in some parts. The main theme of this chat is to do with who owns Scotland's energy, and quite an interesting picture is revealed. I have a warning. We are about to see a horrible, horrible winter. The first of many horrible winters. People in Scotland are going to die. Old people are going to die of hypothermia. People are, are going to die because they can't feed themselves. The price of gas has gone up threefold in Europe in the last year. It's gone up twice in America. Gas prices have shot up everywhere. And don't listen to what they say on the BBC. I know you never listen to what they say on the BBC, but <laughs> absolutely. But gas prices are not going down. Their gas prices have gone up and they'll stay up, which means old people are going to die in Scotland. Now, why is that tragic? It's tragic twicefold. It's tragic because our elderly are in peril. But it's tragic because this is a country that is full of energy. We are one of Europe's greatest energy resources. Now, there's a question, there's a debate to be had about how we move to carbon zero. 
But let's say at the moment, let's understand at the moment, nobody needs to die in Scotland of being cold because this is the energy capital of Europe. When you go home tonight and you turn the gas on, here's something that gives you your gas is owned by the Abu Dhabi Investment Fund. Abu Dhabi, that wonderful paragon of democracy. Why is the pipeline owned by Abu Dhabi Investment Fund? Because for the last 20 years, we've given away everything in Scotland to foreign corporate interests. The pipeline, your gas pipeline that turns your cooker on, gives you your house you're eating, is also half owned by the uh, um, Ontario Teachers uh, Pension Fund. I'm nothing against Ontario teachers. I'd be happy if Scottish teachers owned the pipeline, but they don't. Foreign corporate, corporate entities, entities own everything, everything under, under your feet. feet. Right. Now, now, here's a thing. Here's a thing, fellow nationalists. Where did those bikers get the petrol to put in their Most of the petrol that you put in your car or your motorcycle is refined at Grangemouth. Grangemouth Ineos plant is half owned by Petrol China, the largest Chinese energy group, the largest energy group in Asia. Why do the Chinese government, petrol company, own Grangemouth? Everything to do with our energy infrastructure is foreign owned. One of the reasons we want independence is so we can have our energy back. If we don't have it back, then more old age pensioners will die every winter from now on. If we want to control our energy, if we want to make the carbon transition, we have to own it and control it. I think the importance of today is a united front. We're here from all parties and none. So, no sectarianism. But I'm going to say this. I want, I'm not an SNP member, but I want to congratulate the members of the SNP and the conference of the SNP for voting for a Scottish National Energy Corporation. We need a Scottish National Energy Corporation and all power to the rank and file members of the SNP and the SNP conference that voted for that. I also want to thank the members of the Green Party in Scotland. The Green Party and the Green Party conference voted for a Scottish National Energy Corporation. That's what we need if we are to control our own energy assets. I want to point to the SNP manifesto, uh, which when I was a member, uh, I used to read assiduously. The SNP uh, election manifesto promised a Scottish National Energy Corporation. Good on that manifesto. So I'm not making any sectarian comments. I'm just saying that if you believe there should be a Scottish National uh, Energy Corporation, as do the rank and file membership of the SNP and the Greens, then we need to tell the people in here. Finally, finally, here's the obvious point. If we don't get independence, we can't control our energy. If we can't control our energy, our gas, uh, our renewables, if it's still foreign-owned, then more people will die in Scotland of hypothermia in the country that dominates Europe's energy production. That is what you need to tell 
people on the doorsteps. And that's it for this month's podcast version of the Indie Jigsaw. If you would like to listen to a weekly selection of clips, you can get that on Indie Live Radio at noon on Tuesdays. And I'll be back again next month's episode of the Indie Jigsaw podcast. I'm a